So this morning we're reading in Hosea, uh, and we are in chapter 7. Pastor Paul has been going through Joshua, and uh, when I get to occasionally preach, I get to continue my series in Hosea. And it's been really, actually really interesting, because Joshua is, um, is the beginning of them taking hold of their promises. Uh, it's the story of how they came into the land and how God was faithful to do all these things for them and um, and the whole beginning. And Hosea is really the end of that. Hosea is how they lost it. And so um, I've personally been really fascinated by seeing these themes of um, disobedience and not seeking the face of the Lord, um, not turning to him, um, seeing them continue on and become something far worse, this idolatry, um, or as Hosea describes it, this whoredom of their souls um, that God is going to punish. So this morning we are in, well, let's pray first and then we'll start. Father God, Lord, today we're reading a difficult passage. Um, We are reading about your love for your people Um, and your willingness to do whatever it takes to break them of their passions for their idols. Um, Lord, we're reading about your judgment against them because of their hearts. As we do so, Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts, um, that you would help us to stand in the truth, to know that we are loved by you, Um, and to cultivate within ourselves through your Holy Spirit um, a passion and a zeal for you and not for the things of this world. Prepare all of our hearts, Lord. May your truth be spoken today. Amen. So Hosea chapter 7 is sort of the middle of this middle section. It's halfway through the book, really. Um, and this middle section is really the, the divorce proceedings of God with Israel. So the middle sections from basically from chapter 4 on to almost through 9 is intense. And you've experienced quite a few intense chapters with me, amen? Um, this one, though, is unique. I think it's unique personally in its poetry um, because it is beautifully written. Uh, the metaphors and similes that Hosea uses here to describe Israel's idolatry is amazing. Um, but it is also important and refreshing because in this chapter, unlike 6 and to some extent 5, there's this demonstration of God's desire for their restoration um, that you don't see in those other chapters. He's earnestly seeking for them, but they are returning only lies and treachery. They do not seek him. They do not turn to him. Um, so let's dig into it, shall we? We're going to be starting with the second half of um, verse 11 of chapter 6. And uh, in honor of God's word, would you stand with me while I read this? I'm reading in the New English translation, but it should still track if you're reading the ESV. Whenever I want to restore the fortunes of my people, whenever I want to heal Israel, the sin of Ephraim shall be revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria are exposed. 
For they do what is wrong. Thieves break into houses and gangs rob people out in the streets. They do not realize that I remember all of their wicked deeds. Their evil deeds have now surrounded them. Their sinful deeds are always before me. The royal advisors delight the king with their evil schemes. The princes make him glad with their lies. They are all like idolaters. They are like smoldering ovens. They are like a baker who does not stoke the fire until the kneaded dough is ready for baking. At the celebration of their king, his princes become inflamed with wine. They conspire with evildoers. They approach him, all the while plotting against him. Their hearts are like an oven. Their anger smolders all night long, but in the morning it bursts into a flaming fire. All of them are blazing like an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings fall, and none of them call on me. A frame has mixed itself like flour amongst the nations. A frame is like a ruined cake of bread that is scorched on one side. Foreigners are consuming what his strenuous labor produced, but he doesn't recognize it. His head is filled with gray hair, but he does not realize it. The arrogance of Israel testifies against him, yet they refuse to return to the Lord their God. In spite of all of this, they refuse to seek him. A frame has been like a dove, easily deceived and lacking discernment. They called to Egypt for help. They turned to Assyria for protection. I will throw my bird net over them while they are flying. I will bring them down like birds in the sky. I will discipline them when I hear them flocking together. Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I want to deliver them, but they have lied to me. They do not pray to me, but howl in distress in their beds. They slash themselves for grain and new wine, but turn not to, or excuse me, but turn away from me. Although I trained them and strengthened them, they plot evil against me. They turn to Baal. They are like an unreliable bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because their prayers to Baal have made me angry. So people will disdain them in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Each time I read another one of these chapters to get ready for a sermon, I'm like, well, how am I going to preach on this one? Like I'm just going to preach the same sermon over and over again, but God is so faithful to give me uh, insights that I can share with you. So with those first verses, starting in 11b um, in chapter 1, or excuse me, 11b and verse 1, it says, Whenever I want to restore the fortunes of my people, whenever I want to heal Israel, the sin of Ephraim shall be revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria exposed, for they do what is wrong. Thieves break into houses and gangs rob people out in the streets. There is a cost to restoration of, from God. Amen? It is freely given, but it costs something to receive. 
to be reconciled, our sins must be exposed. Notice what he's saying here. He says, I, whenever I restore the fortunes of my people, whenever I want to heal Israel, then there's a cost. And in your Bibles, it might say the sin of a frame is revealed or was revealed. Um, and I, if you notice, I put shall be in brackets. And the reason why is because that's that future, uh, that perfect future tense. Um, it's the, uh, the prophetic tense of scripture. So really what it's saying is that this is going to happen, but it's written in the past tense because it's so guaranteed that it, we may as well consider it as if it's already happened. So he's saying, when I restore the fortunes of my people, when I heal Israel, their sins will be revealed. And this is a fact that we try to ignore, I think, sometimes. Now, have you ever convinced yourself um, that you would no longer uh, feed yourself to that hidden sin? We all have one, right? Or, or have had ones in the past. Um, that thing that is consuming us, right? And we say, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. And I convince myself, you know what? That's enough. I'm going to come here and I'm going to sing these praise songs and it's done. And we, we convince ourselves that's got to be enough, right? I just, I just stop and that will work. And we trick ourselves into thinking that we don't have to confess that sin to our spouse or our loved ones or to God. Has anyone ever fallen for that trap? Really? Just like four of you? Okay, five? Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We trick ourselves. Okay, I'm, I'm just not going to do it anymore. And, you know, and then I won't have to pay the consequences because, trust me, confessing something to your spouse or to God or to friends, that is painful. I don't know what other words we could use to describe it, but it's not pleasant. And it would be much easier to just, you know what? God's forgiven me. I don't have to confess it. Amen. Talk about presumptuousness with God. Amen. The truth is that there can be no clean state, slate, until we have confessed. Uh, 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we hate, say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice what we were singing earlier. What was it all about? It was all about grace. It was all about freedom from sin, being washed clean, the amazingness of God as our Redeemer, the sacrifice that he paid. Those things are all true, but if we sing them without confessing, then it's just a cathartic exercise. We just make ourselves feel good, right? And I'm not saying you have to confess to a priest or to a particular human being, but I am saying you have to come to God honestly and say, God, I have sinned against you, and here is how I've done it. Forgive me. And then all those things we sing are true, amen? Then we're washed clean by the blood. Praise God. As long as we refuse to bring our transgressions to the Lord, refuse to bring them into the light, they'll plague us. I've experienced this. And when we finally get real with God, it hurts. It's like the setting of a dislocated shoulder. But just like a shoulder being set, it will bring something far better and more lasting 
um, in peace than that discomfort. Trust me, when your shoulder is dislocated, you don't want anyone to touch it. Like You don't want anyone to touch it. Just leave it alone. It's okay right now. But if you, <laughs> the longer you go before setting it, the worse it's going to hurt because those muscles are tightening. And I think that's sometimes, that, that's our experience with God. It hurts to set that shoulder, but you got to set it if you're ever going to use your arm again. Let's look at verse 2. They do not realize that I remember all their wicked deeds. Their evil deeds have surrounded them. Their sinful deeds are always before me. Now, the Hebrew here is literally, they did not say in their hearts. But this is an idiom in Hebrew. It, 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 what it means, we would say, it didn't enter their mind. It didn't enter their minds that I remember all of their wicked deeds. And we do this too sometimes, amen? Sometimes we are guilty of living two parallel, incompatible lives. And it doesn't enter our head sometimes that when we lie or slander or cheat or condemn or judge, uh, that God does not just see us on Sunday mornings or when we're praying. He sees us then too. He is aware of more of each of us than we are ourselves. And the Lord knows the substance of a man's heart. Now, what this is describing, these first few chapters, is what um, we are told in Luke 14, 11. Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The prophecies of Hosea have come in a time of incredible abundance and prosperity for Israel. Okay, from the time of Solomon on, Israel has increased in its prosperity and power and glory and corruption. And God is basically saying, I'm going to humble you, and it's coming soon. In fact, you can't avoid it anymore. I've asked you many times to humble yourselves, and you refused, and now is coming the humble part. How much better is it for us to humble ourselves before the Lord instead of waiting for him to humble us because of the hardness of our hearts? That's what the Holy Spirit is always saying to us. Don't wait for the chastisement of God to humble you. Humble yourself in confession and be cleansed in righteousness. Be able to sing those words we were singing with joy and adoration without guilt of knowing oh, they're not quite true because I haven't really given up that thing. Now, what follows here is a description of the heart God sees in his people. It's not a condemnation of their actions. It's a condemnation of their twisted and charred hearts. Remember, God searches the hearts of men, and he tests the inward man, to, and he is faithful to give accordingly. 1 Chronicles 28, uh, 9 says, Yahweh searches all hearts and understands every plan and all thoughts. He understands the thoughts I don't even understand. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you abandon him, he will reject you forever. So we're going to move into verses 3 and on. And this is the first of three metaphors um, about the people of Israel. 
God is going to be explaining the reason for his divorce of Israel. Um, actually, it's important that we remember the first three chapters of Hosea uh, because they're really a summary of what's happening now. I want to turn back and just remind ourselves. In Hosea 1, the first thing that happens is the Lord speaks directly to Hosea and says, I want you to take a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. And he's, he gives a reason why. Because the land uh, commits whoredom in forsaking me. And so he has three children. Uh, Jezreel, who is named after the Valley of Jezreel, where there was a terrible massacre. And he's saying, uh, I'm going to revisit that kind of pain and suffering upon you because of your disobedience. And then you have the second a daughter, which is terrible. It's her name is no mercy, literally not loved, no chesed, um, because he will not have mercy on Israel. He will not forgive them. And after no mercy, he has, um, well, I should say Gomer has, because they're all illegitimate children. Um, she has another uh, son. Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Okay, that's the beginning of chapter 1. And then something incredible happens right there in chapter 1. He says, but a time is coming when I will have mercy on no mercy. And of, the, of those who are said, not my people, I will, you will be called my people. There's a reversal coming. Then chapter 2 is God's divorce of Israel. That's what it is. Um his explanation of exactly why he's doing what he's doing. And um, again, there's this promise at the end of chapter 2. He says, but you will call me my husband and not my Baal, and I will betroth you to me forever in steadfast love um, and in justice. Hang on, I can't find it. I'm just remembering. Steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth to you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Again, there's this promise that this divorce isn't forever. Amen? So what we're reading is this divorce process. Okay? And it's foretold in chapter 3. He says, um, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God. And David, their king, you know who that is. And they shall come to fear the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And latter days is a phrase that literally means later. The second half, basically, is what it means. Um, and so that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, amen? We are Israel reunited with God through King David, Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Amen. So, but what we're reading now isn't the reunification of the bride with God. We're reading about the divorce part, the hard part. So with that said, let's go back to chapter 7, uh, verses 3 through 7. I'm going to read this whole chunk, and then we're going to break it down. The royal advisors delight the king with their evil schemes. The princes make him glad with their lies. They are all like adulterers. They are all like a smoldering oven. They are like a baker who does not stoke the fire until the kneaded dough is ready for baking. 
At the celebration of their king, the princes become inflamed with wine and they conspire with evildoers. They approach him, all the while plotting against him. Their hearts are like an oven. Their anger smolders all night long, but in the morning it bursts into a fiery flame. All of them are a blazing oven. They devour their rulers. All of their kings fall, and none of them call upon me. So there are two parallel themes that we're moving through here. This first one, and Jory, I got these reversed, just so you know. Uh, starts. It's this metaphor, the simile of the, uh, the oven and the baker. And so we're just going to read those portions. Um, verse 4, they are like bakers. They are like a smoldering oven. They are like a baker who does not soak the fire until the kneaded dough is ready for baking. And in 6, their hearts are like an oven. Their anger smolders all night long. But in the morning, it bursts into a flaming fire. And then in 7, all of them are blazing like an oven. And what that's compared to is um, the corrupt ruler narrative. The royal advisors delight the king with their evil schemes. The princes make him glad with their lies. At the celebration of the king, his princes become inflamed with wine and conspire with evildoers. They approach him, all the while plotting against him. They devour their rulers and all their kings fall. It's a pretty interesting um, narrative here. Um, so with the Baker thing, it reminded me uh, in my misadventures learning to bank uh, when I'd moved out of my mother's house and I no longer had someone who could bake. Um, I remember getting something ready and then like, oh, the oven's not on. I better turn it on. Um, and then you think, well, now I got to cook this faster. Has anyone fallen for the trap of, you know, okay, this says 30 minutes at 300. So if I did 400 degrees, that would be like, oops, like maybe 20 minutes, right? And that's kind of what's going on here. They're, it says that they smolder all night long and then their hearts burst into flaming fire. And above that, it says they're like a baker who doesn't soak the fire until the kneaded dough is ready. If you were making sourdough and you set your starter out to rise, You'd be crazy not to turn the oven on until the sourdough is risen. You get the oven warm, you know, so you're ready. If you're not a baker, you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's okay. I barely know. I'm competent now. I can make muffins. What this is describing came to pass not soon afterwards. Um, their rulers and their culture had become obsessed with avarice and betrayal and uh, punitive punishment. Really, it become obsessed with being, um, what's the word? Outraged. And um, their culture had become filled with this Machiavellian um, obsession with getting up on each other. I mean, it's a true Game of Thrones kind of scenario. In fact, in the final days of uh, Israel, let's see, how many were there? There were, um, of the six men who reigned in those 30 years, four were assassinated, and only one died in his own bed. You had military coups and assassinations and plottings, and it was, uh, it was terrible. You know, everyone was so hungry for what? Not God. Yeah, 
They were, they were hungry for power and fame and position and money, everything that God had given them graciously. That's what they hungered for and not for him. Now, this bread metaphor uh, is carried into a new context in 8 and 9. Now, where before they were like an oven um, with their appetites and depravity, the simile is now extended to show how they became this way and what would result from it. So let's look at verse 8 and 9. Ephraim, which is Israel, by the way, has mixed itself like flour among the nations. A frame is a ruined cake of bread that is scorched on one side. Foreigners are consumed, uh, or excuse me, foreigners are consuming what his strenuous labor produced, and he does not recognize it. His head is filled with gray hair, and he does not realize it. As the Apostle Paul warned us twice, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The northern kingdom had mixed its culture and its values and even its religious beliefs with those of its neighbors, and it was now paying the price. But what this is saying goes beyond the mixing of the profane and the holy. It's also saying that they were burned on one side. Um, and in the Hebrew, it really says that they're uncooked on one side and burned on the other. That would be me trying to cook something twice as fast at twice the temperature, right? They're charred black on one side and raw on the other side. And uh, the picture, the sermon illustration is actually a loaf of bread being cooked in a wood-burning oven like they would use. And this is interesting. The Israelites were cold and uncooked on one side, black on the other. They, as the metaphor of a flatbread, were a ruined and completely inedible loaf fit only for destruction. Now that phrase, gray hairs, it literally does mean gray hairs, but because of the context, it's a play on words. What it's describing here is hairs of mold growing on a loaf of bread. What a powerful image of their descent into depravity and corruption. The nation of Israel is literally rotting away even as the nations around it devour what tiny scraps can be scavenged. And the metaphor finishes up in verse 10. The arrogance of Israel testifies against him, yet they refuse to return to the Lord their God. In spite of all of this, they refuse to seek him. Now, this brought me um, to the letters of the churches in Revelations, specifically to the letter um, to the church in Laodicea, which is in chapter 3, and it's 14 through 22, if you want to mark it down. In that letter, John the Beloved uh, is commanded to write by an angel of the Lord. Um, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, and naked. I counsel, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen 
and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. The Israelites were both uncooked and scorched. And, and I realized not really hot or cold, but a useless combination of the two. Amen? A useless combination of the two. And isn't that what tepid water is? It's a useless combination of hot water and cold water. Can we as a church become that way? Yeah, we can. Sometimes we, I think we've, we fall into the trap of viewing the lukewarm, and I resent that term. I like tepid, personally. Um, the lukewarm Christians as just being apathetic. They're just kind of meh. But I don't think that's true. Their lack of hotness or coldness is only in relation to God. In life, they suck the zest from their pleasures. But God is only resigned to the smallest nook in their hearts. Just enough of their hearts is kindled towards him to keep it warm. Wow, right? Well, why? Why is such a small portion of their hearts kindled towards God? Well, because the rest of the tepid Christian's heart is full to bursting with everything else. Now, they may be hot in passion towards um, physical pleasure or family or society or security. They may be cold towards things that they, dis they deem unworthy like substance abuse or dishonesty or corruption. But they lack any particular zeal towards Yahweh. And he says to them, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. That's the promise at the end of this passage in Revelations. <coughs> Excuse me. God is knocking at their doors. But like the Jew, the uh, Israelites, they refuse to admit them, him into their lives. And what a tragedy. God's appeal to the church is the same as his appeal to the southern kingdom. Throughout the oracles of Hosea, he's been saying of Israel, it's too late for you. But he keeps saying to Israel, don't let Judah, or excuse me, to Judah, don't let Judah become guilty too. He's warning. The whole point of the prophecies of Hosea isn't to warn the Israelites. It's too late for them. It's to warn Judah, don't become like them. Watch yourselves, guard yourselves. They are going to be destroyed because of their idolatry. Don't let yourselves be destroyed too. And that's something we have to take to heart. Amen. Don't let us be destroyed, too, for our idolatry. Now the second um, metaphor, the stupid creature. Uh, Hosea chapter 7, 11 through 12. A frame has been like a dove, easily deceived and lacking discernment. Your Bibles might say silly. Uh, they called to Egypt for help. They turned to Assyria for protection. I will throw my bird net over them while they're flying. I will bring down the birds from the sky. I will discipline them when I hear them flocking together. And the word dove, it's dove or pigeon. They're the same word in Hebrew. So um, it's like a honing pigeon. Under imminent threat of God's judgment, the silly dove flees to safety. But there's no safety where they're fleeing. They trust in their own understanding instead of trusting Yahweh with their hearts. And and by doing so, they do what is right in their own eyes. Amen? 
They are silly because they know where their refuge is. They have been told throughout the law and throughout the writings and throughout the prophets where to find their refuge. Here's a couple. First Chronicles 16.11. Seek Yahweh and his strength. Seek his face continually. Psalms 34.10 and 11. Those who seek Yahweh will not lack for any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear Yahweh. In Psalm 11.1. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? What a prophetic line that was. How many hundreds of years before was that written? No, they did not say like David, in the Lord I will take my refuge. They did as David prophesied in Psalm 10, with bald-faced pride, the wicked will not seek God. There is no God in any of his thoughts. This should remind us of Gomer, Hosea's adulterous wife. How many times did he bring her home against her heart's desire? And how many times has the Lord brought Israel back to himself? And when is enough enough? Moving on to 13 and through 15. Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I want to deliver them, but they have lied to me. They do not pray to me, but howl in distress on their beds. They lacerate themselves for grain and new wine, but turn away from me. Although I trained and strengthened them, they plot evil against me. Now, two phrases in this verse should stop to give us pause because they illuminate the heart behind God's wrath. In my previous sermon, I said that God's judgment comes <clears throat> from his love. And I hope you believe me. But here's another example. I think sometimes we struggle with the idea of God's wrath. Amen? Um, it's sometimes hard for us to connect these two ideas of this loving God who loves us so much that he would send his son to pay our penalty for us with a God who will dispense wrath and judgment on his people for their disobedience. But here we're kind of given a clue. Notice he says, I want to deliver them, but... Amen? And although I strengthened and trained them, but this tells us something important. The Lord is for them. Even now he is for them. But they refuse to return to the Lord. He earnestly desires to save them from their fate, but they refuse to seek him. That is to say, they sought their idols instead. They went whoring after the pleasures of it rather than turning home to their husband. They are adulterers, betraying the love of their husband with relish and zeal for their lovers. This passage and the ones before it are the case for God's reasons for divorce. Notice that they grieve in this passage. They lacerate themselves. But it's not for the wrong the wrong that they've done to their beloved. They grieve for the loss of wealth, the loss of comfort, for the consequences of sin, but not for the sin itself. And I think I understand that. I think I understand that really well. When I was struggling with my alcoholism, I would sometimes 
be found out and confronted. And in those moments, I do remember occasionally, um, as is described here, thinking about hurting myself in grief and sorrow. Um, and I did not grieve, as some might think, for the transgression itself. Nor did I grieve um, because I was just found out. It wasn't either of those two things, the good or the bad. I grieved because I had caused harm to a relationship. And I thought in that state of mind that that was the correct grief, um, but it's not. I desperately wanted to be sober and victorious, and praise God, I am. Amen. But my grief was for the consequences of the sin, not for the sin itself. I ached for the damage I was doing to relationships, to the hurt I was causing others, um, but I, was, I did not ache for the damage I was doing to Jesus because those nails going through his hands, that was the damage I was doing in that moment. Psalm 51.4, David gives us an amazingly insightful passage. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Talking to the Lord. You see, all of our sins are against God. Now, yes, sometimes they do affect those around you. But the primary injured party is always the loving Father in heaven. So when you lie to a loved one, yeah, they're going to suffer as collateral damage. But Jesus is the one being tormented and judged for that crime. And when you treat others with contempt, you're treating Christ with contempt. Amen? They did not realize that everything they were doing was causing pain to their father. And then 15 on, it says, Although I trained and strengthened them, they plot evil against me. They turn to Baal. They're like an unreliable bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because their, of their prayers to Baal have made me angry. So people will disdain them in the land of Egypt. An unreliable bow. This isn't the only place that uh, phrase is used in the, the Bible. I want you to think about this. When you have something like a weapon of war, it's important that it be maybe not the best, but at least consistent, right? If you had a bow that works most of the time, but every now and then it'll twist and you know your arrow will go shooting off in the wrong distance. I guarantee you, because we're all beholden to Murphy's Law, that in your time of direst need, that bow is going to betray you, right? And in that moment, wouldn't it have been better not to have the bow at all? If a bow is 90% uh, consistent, it's a useless bow. It has to be 100% consistent, even if it's a bad bow. At least having a bad bow that always does the same thing each time is better than having a good bow that sometimes just does something weird. And I think this is why God said to the church of Laodicea that he would rather they were cold or hot than being lukewarm. I was always confused by that. I'm like, surely lukewarm is better than cold, right? I mean, at least there's a little heat there. But no, cold is a quality you can work with. Cold is a quality that we're all in before we repent and enter into grace. 
Warm is useless. There's nothing you can do with warm. Israel had been established and maintained by the Lord. He had appointed their rule over the land and blessed them with abundance, but they were inconsistent in their love towards him. Imagine having a spouse that is faithful to you usually. Like, they were faithful yesterday and the day before and the day before that, but tomorrow they're going to have an affair. Is that a spouse worth having? No, like a little bit unfaithful is unfaithful. Amen? It doesn't matter how often they're faithful to you. That's irrelevant, you know? Um, And so, (laughs) you know, uh, sorry, I lost my spot. How much better it is to be consistent in our obedience and love towards God. It's what he desired from the Israelites, and it's what he desires of us. A little ice can cool a boiling cup. And so, too, a little idolatry can make our hearts tepid towards God. So in conclusion, we have these three amazing statements. I implore them to return to me, but they refuse to return to me. I desire to deliver them, but they lie to me and they do not pray to me. I trained and strengthened them, but they plot evil against me. This is what is said of every man and woman who walks under their own strength to eternal damnation. They refuse and rebuff every opportunity to repent and to be made whole in Christ. Their hearts were full of evil and treachery, only seeking to find out what they could get out of the deal. But it's also what is true of all of us before we learn to walk in the Holy Spirit. We are not different by nature. We all contain the avarice and selfishness required to spit in the face of the crucified king. So what then is the difference The difference is the incredible grace received when we stepped into faith. It's not anything we've done differently, except that when the amazing, uh, excuse me, when the call of amazing grace came and thank the Lord it came, we accepted. When we heard Jesus knocking, we opened the door and invited him into our hearts. And I'm not saying this to say it's some kind of work, we would be here for another hour. Um, but there's a cooperation there. Um, but this tale of Israel's downfall should caution us to remember that faithfulness is not some trophy that, you know, once earned, we put into its case and forget about it. Faithfulness demands it to be ever present as the centerpiece of our lives. If God is love, then faith must be the blood pumping within our hearts. Let us keep it hot and unchilled by idolatry. And for benediction, Hosea, excuse me, we were in Hosea, Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. Let us therefore together strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division between soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must all give an account. Let us give an account in faith, standing in grace. Amen. God bless you.